we have uh, a new clock back there. Did you see that new clock? No way anybody can forget the time with that clock back there. Yeah. Years ago, I heard a story about a little boy who asked his father when the, uh, the teacher for the Sunday services uh, got up in the pulpit and back in the days when people wore wristwatches and he took his wristwatch off and he put it on the pulpit and the little boy said to his father, Dad, what, what does that mean? And his dad said, Son, it doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> he took off that watch and put it there and said, doesn't mean a thing. Turn in your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Good to see all of you. And we welcome all who are watching us by the Internet. We are so glad that you have tuned in to these Tuesday night studies and Sunday mornings also. And if you're in the Nashville, Tennessee area, we hope you'll come and worship with us here at Grace Church, 4052 Arno Road in Franklin, Tennessee, just minutes south of Nashville. I have two issues that I'd like to talk to you about tonight, but we may not get a chance to get to both of them. If not, then I'll bring you one more next week. Gospel of Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And the Lord Jesus enters into Capernaum, verse 1, after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. That is, the word got around that Jesus was there. And straightway, right away, immediately, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. They couldn't get in the house. There were so many people. And they came unto him, bringing the sick of the palsy, borne by four. There was four people using a kind of stretcher, like you would see at the hospital, paramedics, and they are bringing this man that's sick of the palsy. And when they could not come near to him, that is near to Jesus, for the press, that's what, what press is, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox. No, this is an old English word that means people were pressed together and there was no room for them to get in the front door. And back in those days, the roofs of houses were flat. So they couldn't come in, and they uncovered the roof. They took away some shingles, some rock shingles, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. So they let this bed down with this man on it. And when Jesus noticed this, when Jesus saw their faith, Faith always acts. Faith that does not act, faith that doesn't want to obey, is not faith. When he saw their faith, he said to the man who was sick with the palsy, Sons, thy sins be forgiven thee. Certain of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemy? 
who can forgive sins but God only. Let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus, asking you to help us tonight in our teaching and in our hearing that we might understand the truth, know him who is the truth and the way and the life, and that we might glorify thee on his behalf. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Were they right to say this? Yes, they were. Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, last week when we ended our study, I put this word up here, S-H-I-R-K, shirk. The main issue with Islam regarding the Jesus that we worship, the Christ of the Christian, is his divinity. For Islam, there can only be one being who is confessed as God. In other words, Islam has the same problem with the Lord Jesus that the Jews had with him. Muslims believe that we have made Jesus divine every year about this time, the History Channel will have a series of things about who is Jesus, where is the real Jesus, who is the real Jesus, and where can he be found, and it'll be all about his divinity, whether he's divine or not. Because if he's not, then of course most of these issues go away. The Muslims believe that we've made Jesus divine, but that he never claimed to be God. Right here in this passage, chapter 2 and verse uh, 7, the scribes said, Who can forgive sins but God only? In other words, if Jesus says here, Thy sins be forgiven thee, which is what he said, then he is blaspheming, Verse 7, why does this man speak blasphemies if he is not God? And of course, the Lord Jesus turned the tables on him. He perceived in his spirit that they were reasoning about these things. And he said, why do you reason in your hearts whether it's easier to say to the sick of the palsy? They wanted him to hear these words, thy, thy palsy is delivered. Whether it's easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, take up your bed and walk. That's what they wanted to hear. They wanted him to say, take up his bed and walk. But that you may know that I have power on earth to forgive sins. I will do what you expected me to do. In other words, if I can say to him, take up your bed and walk, and I can make him do that, then the other about forgiving sins ought to be automatic. You can, you can believe that too. And so that's what he did. He said to the sick of the palsy in verse 11, Arise, take up your bed, go your way into your own house. And the man got up, took his bed. Notice now, he got up. What does your Bible say in verse 12? How quickly did he give up? Anybody have the word immediately? Okay, do you have some other word? This was, he didn't say, now, you won't, you, won't, you won't really be here for a while, but you just keep believing it. 
You just keep confessing it now. You just keep saying, Jesus has healed me. Jesus has healed me. Jesus has healed me. And after a while, you begin to feel like you're healed. No, he didn't do that. He said, he spoke the word. He said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately he got up, took up his bed and walked. And when God heals somebody like that, not that he can't use a process, he certainly can. But when these healers claim to have the power of healing, and yet they tell people, well, you just have to keep believing, keep confessing, keep believing, that's a false prophet, that's a false teacher. And I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to say that. Now, some of these passages I want us to look at today, uh, this evening, you know, of course, the passages in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. And the Word was made flesh, and we beheld His glory. The glory is only of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's in John chapter 1. Now turn to John chapter 8. Let's look at some of these passages. John chapter 8. John chapter 1 says, The Word by which all things were created came into the world as a man. We know that God spoke the universe into existence. And so if Jesus was that Word, if He was that eternal Word that came into the flesh, then He is of the essence of God. John chapter 8, really it encompasses verse 47 through 58. 47 through 58 Jesus said, verse 47, He that is of God hears God's words. You don't hear them because you are not of God. Well, then they got into uh, this thing, you know, your father, you're, you're acting like your father. Well, Abraham's our father. Well, if Abraham was your father, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. You're acting like your father. Well, our father is God. Well, if God were your father, you'd love me because he sent me. Then he says this in verse 56. Your father, the one you says your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. And the Jews said, verse 57, you're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, it was God who said, when Moses asked him, when I go to the children of Israel and they say, who is sending you? What God is sending you? You shall say unto them, I am that I am has sent you. So here he uses the same language of himself that the God of Israel used. He said, before Abraham ever saw the break of day, I was around. If you read the first three chapters of Proverbs, you will find that God takes wisdom. He, he inspires uh, Solomon to write about wisdom. And he says that wisdom was with God before anything was ever created. That wisdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. You read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Jesus has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So he says in John 1, John says, he was the word that was in the beginning, 
through which everything was created. John 8, Jesus says, I am the I am, I am the God who spoke to Abraham, who spoke to Moses. John chapter 10, verse 30, you should be familiar with this. You should mark these passages so that you can tell people uh, when you have a question, they have a question about the divinity of the deity. In John 10, 30, he said, I and my Father are one. They took up stones to stone him. People said Jesus didn't claim to be God. Well, why did they take up stones to stone him? His own enemies know what he's saying. He says, I've done many works, verse 32, for which of those works do you stone me? They said, we are not stoning you for a good work, verse 33. We're stoning you for blasphemy because you're a man and you're making yourself God. All right, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. See if you can find that. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is what Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And verse 15, this is a faithful saying, worthy to be accepted of all, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for pattern to them which should afterward believe on him to life everlasting. Paul says here, I am a pattern that demonstrates the great mercy of God. He saved me. He came into the world to save sinners. And if you have any doubt about whether he can save you or not, I'm the pattern. Okay? Now, verse 17, unto the king eternal. Now, when Jews pray, they pray to the king of the universe. That's the language that they use. And he says, unto the king eternal, immortal, what does immortal mean? That means something that can't die. Invisible. The only wise God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And he, if you read the verses preceding this, you see that he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling him the eternal king, the only one who has immortality, the invisible God the only wise God, to him be the honor and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, now let's go over to the little book of Jude. That's near the end of the, the Bible. You find the first and second and third John, and you can find the little book of Jude just before the book of Revelation. And Jude... In verse 20, says to the Christians, Beloved, build yourself up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, having even the garment is spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that it is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, to present you completely without fault 
before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power now and forever. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, go back the other way to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Tremendous verses. I taught on these verses a long, uh, years ago and it takes a lot of study to, to open up really what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. But in chapter 1, he says that God in the past and in many different ways spoke unto the fathers by the prophets. He has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And who is his Son? He is the brightness of his glory, and he is the express image of his person. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he's the one that purged us from our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That is language that applies only to God. Now go down to verse 5. Under which of the angels did he say at any time, you are my son? Now, if God has a son, his son has to be of the same nature and essence that he is. So if, the, if God has a son, then his son is God. This, you're my son. This day I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he should be to me a son. You'll have a little note there that says Psalm 2, probably in the verse. It might also say 2 Samuel 7. When he brought the firstborn into the world, verse 6, he said, verse 6, let all the angels of God do what? Worship him. You cannot worship Jesus if he's not God. If you're worshiping him and he's not God, you are committing sacrilege. You're giving him honor and glory that goes only to God. But he receives worship. You remember when the devil tempted him? He said to the devil, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. But you can't worship Jesus if he's not God. Then verse 8, unto the Son he said, verse 8, unto the Son he said, Thy throne, O God. God called Jesus God. That's what he said. God, the God of Israel, called Jesus God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, there are lots of passages that we could look at, but those should suffice. John 1. John 8, John 10, 1 Timothy 1, Jude 20 through 25, and Hebrews 1. Then Hebrews chapter 2, we'll look at this last one. Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, verse 14. For as much as the children 
the children that God's going to save are partakers of flesh and blood. He himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He took not on him the nature of angels, he took on him the seed of Abraham. So he who was God became like man in order to save man. There are passages like the passage in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God. So what form was Jesus in before he took the form of man? He was in the form of God. He who was in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't something he had to grasp at or something he had to rob in order to take the title of deity that he was by nature God and he was God in the flesh. Now, he became a man, we just read this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. He became a man in order to save man. That means that he hungered, he was thirsty, he felt pain, he grew weary, he slept, he was a man. But then he raised the dead, he healed the sick, he calmed the winds and the waves. When he woke, they woke him up and the, the waves were coming in the boat and they said, Lord, wake up. Do you not care that we perish? And he, he said, oh, ye of little faith. And he spoke to the wind and it says that the wind just died down like a little puppy at the feet of his master. And they said, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Sounds like God to me. Sounds like God to me. Now, a shirk, I'm quoting now, quoting from an uh, Islamic scholar, quote, the act of associating anyone or anything to the one God is a deadly sin called shirk. In other words, to attribute deity to anyone other than Allah is shirkness. What does it mean? Here's what I'm quoting there. They have a little square in this book that says, what does it mean? Then he says, shirk is the sin of associating someone or something with the one God, making something equal to Allah. It is the gravest of all sins, and it is regarded as unforgivable if the person committing it dies while still engaged in it. Pagans in Arabia who worshiped many gods in the Islamic view were guilty of shirk. So what is the greatest sin according to Islam? Worship of someone or something in the place of Allah saying that anything or anyone is God. That's the worst sin you can commit in Islam. The worst sin that you can commit. So they will never be able to 
believe on the Lord Jesus because we know and believe that he is God. Now, why do we know and believe that? Number one, because the scriptures teach it. But number two, because we know that, as we read in Mark chapter 2 and verse 7, who can forgive sins but God only? That is right. And we are sinners. And only God can forgive us of our sins. Only God can put our sins away. Only God can cleanse us from our sin. Only God can satisfy divine justice so that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Now that's something that we accept automatically because we believe that Jesus is God or he couldn't save anybody. That's why I chose this passage because that answers it. Who can forgive sins but God only? His enemies testify of who he is and what he is. Now we are in a lot of trouble in America because of the growing threat of Islam. And I'm gonna spend the, the last 10 minutes. Tom Estes sent me something and I don't know most of you, if you like me, if I didn't have my notes, I wouldn't know what I preached last month. You probably don't remember what I preached, but about in 2006, 2007, I brought out some of these things to you, and Tom sent it to me, and it refreshed my memory. So I want to share this with you, and I hope that uh, you can relate it at least with the, the studies of Islam. And I'd like to be done with this. If we need to have some more studies and actually study Islam, we can certainly do that, but we would do it in the light of the Scripture. You know that Islam uh, came along about six or seven hundred years after the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they had, they took a lot of the things from the Jews, the Old Testament, a lot of things from the Christians of the New Testament, and then added a few things to it. And that's what I believe uh, is a summation of, of the uh, Quran. In order, I want you to listen to these facts. I, I, I wish like uh, the, the, the video was that Tom sent me. I wish I could put this down. Maybe I can print it out for you. What are we doing in this country? We, are, we have aborted over 60 million babies. Over 60 million babies. Number two, we are encouraging young people not to get married. We're encouraging them if they get married not to have children. We are saying, I read an article a few years ago that a woman compared having a child in her to a disease. So what are we doing? Our population is dwindling. What is the Muslim population doing? Listen to this. This report says in order for any culture to survive for more than 25 years, there must be a fertility rate of at least 2.11 children per family. 2.11 children per family, per family. A rate of 1.9 has never been reversed in history. 1.9. A 1.3 children per family 
rate is impossible to reverse. They said it would take 80 to 100 years to correct itself. And they said that there's no economic model that can sustain a culture uh, like that for that long. So if you have two sets of parrots and each set of parrots has one child, there are one half as many children as parents. And if those children have one child, they're only a quarter as many grandchildren as grandparents. And these statistics that I'm giving you tonight, I had 2008, this particular report that Tom sent me to 2006. So just listen to this for a minute. And I'm gonna just give you the notes that I have. If only one million babies were born in the year uh, 2006, there wouldn't even be two million adults in the workforce in 2026, in 20 years. As the population shifts, so does the culture. In 2007, now we're talking 2007, the fertility rate in France was 1.8 children per couple. In England, 1.6 children per couple. In Greece, 1.3 children per couple. In Germany, 1.3. In Italy, 1.2. And in Spain, 1.1. Across the European Union of 31 countries, taking them all together, the fertility rate is 1.38. Let me go back. He says 1.9 has never been reversed and 1.3 is impossible to reverse. So he says here that if you take all of Europe, the fertility rate is 1.38 children per couple. Okay? And they think that that's impossible to reverse that. That means that in a, in a few years, Europe, as we know it, will cease to exist. But the population of Europe is not the problem. What is the problem? Problem is the same problem we're having here, immigration. Of all population growth in Europe since 1990, 90% are Islamic. In southern France, they produce 1.8 children per family. You know what the Muslims in southern France produce? 8.1 children per family. In France, and I brought this out to you a few years ago when I talked about England and France and Italy, in France, there are now more mosques than there are churches. 30% of children aged 20 and younger in France, 30% of them are Islamic. In other areas in France, that number has grown to 45%. They said that by 2027, one in five Frenchmen will be Muslim. And they said then that in 39 or more years, France would be an Islamic Republic. Great Britain, in the last 32 years, the Muslim population has grown from 82,000 to two and a half million a 30-fold increase. And I brought this out to you a year or two ago. There are over a 1,000 mosques in England. 
They're building mosques faster than they are churches, and many of the mosques are former church buildings. In the Netherlands, 50% of all newborn babies are Muslims. That means that only 15, 15 years, half the population in the Netherlands will be Muslim. Russia. You know, I told you in our Sunday morning studies that when communism fell, it opened the floodgates for Islam. In Russia, there are over 23 million Muslims. This was back in 2007, 2008. One of every five Russians is Muslim, and they said in a very few short years that 40% of the Russian army will be Islamic. Now, I checked out some 2023 statistics regarding Russia, and this is what I found out. There are at least 25 million Muslims in Russia, or there were in 2018. 18% of the population in Russia in 2018 is Muslim. Immigrants and migrant workers from Central Asia, which experts estimate at six to seven million, are mostly Muslims. In Belgium, 25% of the population and 50% of all newborns in Belgium are Muslim. It's estimated that one-third of all European children will be born to Muslim families by 2025. The German government, which is the first government to talk about these statistics publicly, recently said through the Germany Federal Statistics Office, and I quote, the fall in the German population can no longer be stopped. Its downward spiral is no longer reversible. It will be a Muslim state at the very latest by the year 2050. You may remember Gaddafi. Remember him? Muammar Gaddafi, former revolutionary chairman of the Libyan Arab Republic. He overthrew a king of Libya. This is what he said. This is significant. He's dead now. Who was it that got him? It was Reagan, wasn't it? Who was it? Huh? Somebody, somebody bombed over there and it killed him, and I think, I think it was Reagan. Yeah. Here's what he said, Gaddafi. This would be the approach I took if I were, if I were a Muslim. He said, there are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam in Europe without swords, without guns, and without conquest. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicidal bombers. The 50 plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. End of quote. And that's true. In 2006, 2007, 2008, when these statistics were made avail available, there were 52 million Muslims in Europe. And they said they expected that number to double in 20 years to 104 million Muslims. That would have been be 2026. All right, what's happening closer to home? How about Canada? The fertility rate in Canada among Canadians is 1.6. These statistics, these people that came up with these statistics said that, that you have to have 2.11, 11 children per family if you're going to sustain your culture. 
and Canada is at 1.6, and that was back in 2006, 7, and 8. Guess what the fastest growing religion in Canada is? It is Islam. And between 2021, I'm sorry, between 2001 and 2006, the population in Canada increased by 1.6 million and 1.2 million came from immigration. How about the United States? Well, we're, we're producing at the fertility rate here is 1.6. And these people said, if you add in Latino immigration, <laughs> that was, remember that's 2008, the statistics that I have, 2008. He said, if you add in all the Latinos, the rate just moves up to 2.11, which is the bare minimum of what it is required to sustain a culture. These fellows said, quote, new waves of immigration from the Middle East came in the late 20th century. Muslims from Lebanon and Palestine, as well as immigrants from Syria, Iraq, and Yemen came in large numbers. And I know this for a fact, Dearborn, Michigan, is home to the largest Muslim population in the United States per capita, as well as the largest mosque in North America. You remember I told you a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, one of the strangest phenomenons Lynn and I have ever experienced, we, we topped a hill. I was going to Detroit to teach, and we topped a hill, and there was this huge mosque, and I suddenly felt like I'd been transported to the Middle East. It was the strangest feeling in America to see a, a large mosque like that. And we drove through Dearborn, Michigan. And Dearborn, Michigan is, I don't know what it is, but it's probably 85% Muslim, and that is true. Uh, so I've been there and I know that's true. It is home to the largest Muslim population in the United States. In 1970, they estimate that there were 100,000 Muslims in the United States. 38 years later, there were over 9 million. In 2005, there was a meeting in Chicago of the Islamic Strategy Conference of Chicago. And the notes from that meeting showed that their plan was to evangelize America. And they said, we're going to use journalism. We're going to use education. And we're going to use politics mainly. And they said this, quote, We must prepare ourselves for the reality that in 30 years or so, there will be 50 million Muslims living in America. The world we live in is not the world our children and grandchildren will live in, end of quote. What are we doing in the United States? We are aborting children as fast as we can abort them. You see how God works? He'll let us do all this abortion stuff, and then we won't even have enough people born to perpetuate the culture, the Christian culture, any other culture. Meanwhile, the Muslims are having an average of eight children per couple. So it's just a matter of time before they can vote anybody in or out of office they want to. And one day, I probably won't live to see it. I don't know, things are moving pretty rapidly. But one day you may see a Muslim flag flying in Washington, D.C. 
People are living together today without marrying. They don't want to have children. They don't want to raise children. They don't want to take the time to raise them. All of you women that are here tonight that have had children, I commend you because it takes a great part of your life. You have to put everything else on hold and you raise your children. Uh, you, you teach them about life and hopefully you teach them about, about God. So using various and sundry methods today to prevent pregnancy and then aborting over 60 million of those who try to be born is going to get us in a world of trouble with Islam. According to the Pew Research Center, they are reliable. Quote, Christianity is expected to lose a net of 66 million adherents, people who say they're Christians, they say that 66 million of them are going to be gone in just a few years. And they, they balanced that out. They said there's an estimate that there might be 40 million converts, but there'll be 106 million apostates. What's an apostate? Comes from a word that means to fall away or to leave the faith. You say you're a believer, you say you're a Christian. You remember the uh, parable that Jesus used of the four seeds? And he said one of those seeds, they ran into trouble and by and by, and they, they went away because they don't have any depth of earth, and others had thorns. And so you have 106 million apostates. And he says, to date, 77% of Muslims converts, 77% of Muslim converts come from people who formerly said they were Christians. 19% of Muslim converts are from a non-religious background. How many of you have ever heard of Cat Stevens? He was a rock and roller. He, has, he was converted to Islam years ago. I don't know what his Muslim name is. They take another name when they convert. According to the Guinness World Records, approximately 12.5 million more persons converted to Islam than to Christianity between 1990 and 2000. Now, I don't even like the term Christianity. That's a religious system. We don't talk about Christianity. We talk about Christ and coming to know him personally. And when you take the number of people who say they're in Christianity, it narrows it down a lot more than that. So 12.5 million more persons converted to Islam than made a profession of faith in Jesus as the Christ. Lastly, according to the Jerusalem Post, in the United Kingdom and France, up to 100,000 people converted to Islam in the last 10 years in, the, in those countries, in each country. So 20,000. And among Latinos, get this now, Islam draws more Hispanic and Latino individuals than any other cultural group. And here's a quote. Quote, many feel Many Latinos feel that it allows them to reclaim their historical ties to a glorious past of the Islamic world. Now, what was Spain under for 500 years? Spain was under Islam. Spanish people were under Islam. All the people that are coming across the border down there, 
if I just threw out a percentage, 95% of them are of what religion? They're, they're Roman Catholic. Everybody in South America is Roman Catholic. So we have a what? Roman Catholic president? So those are all his brothers and sisters coming across that border down there. You see, this nation, listen to me now, I have to close with this. This nation was not founded by Roman Catholics. This nation was founded by folks who were running from Catholic persecution in Europe. And they came over here to have freedom to get away from that. Did you know that on the issue, the question of slavery in this country, did you know that over 95% of the slaves that were sold to this country were Muslims? They were Muslims. The Muslims have been in the slave trading business for centuries, for centuries. And so nobody ever brings up that the black slave owners sold their own brothers and sisters. We just mentioned the white slave owners and that was a tragedy too. But I could say this and everybody would think I'm crazy except maybe a few of you. I believe God uses all kinds of troubles to bring people that he's going to save under the gospel. And I believe that all of these people that were sold as slaves, many of them came to know the Lord Jesus Christ which they would have never known if it hadn't been for that. It's just like the Lord putting Joseph through all the things that he's put him through as we've learned on Sunday morning. If you put yourself in Joseph's position, we can read about him and take heart and be encouraged. But if you had been him, <laughs> and you've been sold by your brothers and thrown in prison and lied and all that stuff, I mean, that was tough. But the way he survived is he kept his eyes on the Lord. And it was the Lord who delivered him. So folks, we've got a, we've got a, 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 a can be a dismal future for America and Canada as a whole. We, we are among that group of people, but we have to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be focused on Him. Do what you can to be consistent in your faith and be consistent in being a witness to others. You don't have to be a theologian. You just tell them like Paul did in the book of Acts. Every time he was cornered, he just said, well, here's what happened to me. I was on the road to Damascus and a bright light shone. I fell down. I said, who is it? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And he said, uh, uh, all the Christians were scared of me. They didn't want to have anything to do with me because they heard that I had been persecuting the Christians. And now they hear that he who persecuted Christ and his people is now preaching the faith, preaching the gospel that he wants persecuted. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word and thank you for the truth that Jesus indeed is God in the flesh. We know that it will take God to save us. We know it will take God to remove our sins. It will take God to replace all of the animosity that's in our hearts with his love. And we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you will use us, teach us, strengthen us, help us, to be witnesses and lights in a world of darkness. We ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.
All right, thank you.